Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. So when we think about technology for 2020, we think of augmented reality, robots are going to go around, they're going to clean your floors, make you food in the kitchen, all sorts of stuff. It, it looks pretty bright, but there's slightly that, you know, dystopian vibe that we're also getting with some of the releases, especially implanted technology. Now, I mean, just let me ask you a question. What do you think about real-time brain-computer interfaces? You know, something that could translate signals from the visual cortex into digital commands. Well, there's a French company that actually managed to do that. And although it sounds sci-fi, the company, which is called Nextmind, announced plans to release and ship a developer kit for the brain-computer interface in the second half of just this year. Now, what does this thing look like? Well, the device itself is pretty small, it's like a disc-shaped object, and it sits at the back of your head, and it weighs just 60 grams, so you'd never know it was there. It has eight electrodes that are meant to measure brain activity, and then translate the user's thoughts into actions. So it's kind of reading your brain waves. Now, how, how does it work? How do you get it to work? Well, the wearer needs to focus on a specific object. Doing so creates a specific response in the visual cortex, which generates machine-readable brainwave patterns. The neurosynchronism, which is an interesting word, between the object and the corresponding brainwaves is then used to translate visual attention into computer commands. Now, Nextmind CEO Sid Kutler says, We've got a pretty good understanding of how the brain works, and especially how visual consciousness, perception, and attention works. This has allowed us to invent this new approach that we call digital neurosynchrony. We use your top-down attention as a controller, so when you focalize differentially towards something, you then generate an attention of doing so. So we don't decode your intention per se, but we decode the output of the intention. Now, Nextmind's headset also uses artificial intelligence, you know, who guessed that? And the software actually improves its own accuracy over time. So the more frequently it's used, the more accurate it becomes. Now, they had a couple of demos and they had testers that were doing them. So there was three demos. The first one was to operate a TV by drawing attention to green triangles. In the second demo, they controlled a simple hopping game using the same principle. And in the third demo, which was probably the most impressive, they played a modified version of the Nintendo Entertainment System classic, Duck Hunt, and they shot ducks solely by visual focus. Kudler says that the biggest limitation right now is on the hardware side. However, that the company is working to make its device even more precise. The developer kit will be sent to selected developers and partners this month. And after the early access period, there's going to be a second triage of hardware, and that's going to be sent to developers in the second half of 2020. And those interested, they can join the waiting list right now. 
Now, with the developer kit, Nextmind is pursuing two goals. Firstly, it wants to collect obviously more data about its AI system. And secondly, it wants developers to explore new applications with their device. So one idea actually is manufacturers could use these in self-driving cars. I mean, imagine that. You could just install the electrodes into the seats so you could have comfort functions of the vehicle and they could all be activated just literally using your brain signals. So you could say, hey, I want a massage, especially with these new Mercedes or something. Another application that Nextmind mentioned was brain-computer interfaces for augmented reality glasses. So that uses the eye tracking, the gestures, and the speech to supplement brain signals. So, I mean, imagine this, though. It's something that you're totally free of tapping and clicking. We've got phones, and that's how we've been used. It's almost like an extension of ourselves. So if you had this in combination with exoskeletons and AR, you could do some pretty incredible things. But you really are merging man with machine. And this kind of could be the start with the Nextmind developer kit. And it's all in its early stages. But whether this type of a thing is going to be used for good or bad, that's just something we're going to have to wait and see. But let's have a little talk about deep fakes now. So around last summer, there was a video of Mark Zuckerberg and it went around Instagram, which had him claiming that he had, quote, total control of billions of people's stolen data, all their secrets, their lives, their futures. Now it turned out, it was a surprise, it turned out that this was just an art project rather than to mislead people. And amazingly, Facebook allowed it to stay on the platform. According to them, it didn't violate any of its policies. But you know what this showed? This shows how big tech companies, they aren't really prepared to deal with the onslaught of all these deep fakes. But who can blame them? Deep fakes are really hard to moderate because the categories are so broad that any attempt to clamp down on AI edited photos, videos, they would all end up in affecting just harmless content. And that's pretty much the majority of the internet. Tim Huang, who's the former director of the Harvard MIT Ethics and Governance of AI Initiative, says, quote, if you take deep fake to mean any video or image that's edited by machine learning, then it applies to such a huge category of things that it's unclear if it means anything at all. If I had to take my Druthers, which I'm not sure I do, I would say the way that we should think about deepfakes is a matter of intent. What are you trying to accomplish at the sort of media that you're creating? Now, obviously that makes a lot of sense, because over at Facebook and Reddit, they both announced moderation policies that cover deepfakes. And when we specifically look at Facebook, they say that it will remove manipulated misleading media which has been edited or synthesized using AI or machine learning in ways that aren't apparent to the average person and would likely mislead someone into thinking the subject of the video said the words that they didn't actually say. But the company noted that this doesn't cover parody or satire, or misleading edits made using traditional means, like last year's video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi supposedly slurring her words. Reddit, meanwhile, they didn't mention AI all, but instead said that it will remove media that impersonates individuals or entities in a misleading or deceptive manner. It also created an exemption for satire and parody, which again is very important, and added that it will always take into account the context of any particular content, which should give the mods quite a lot of leeway. And you know, this whole thing though, it's really funny because earlier versions of deepfake software, you know, it really took a lot of time and technical skill to actually use. 
But the next generation is going to make creating deep fakes as easy as what we're used to with something like Snapchat. Apps that use AI to edit video, this is going to be common. This is totally going to be common in 2020. And as they spread in popularity, the idea of a deep fake as a unique threat to the truth online is probably going to fade away pretty quick. Now, just recently, an app named Duplicat, which is a bit like Duplicate, launched on iOS and Android, and it uses machine learning to paste users' faces on popular reaction GIFs. Right now, it only works with pre-selected GIFs, but the company says it'll allow users soon to insert their faces into any content they want in the future. Meanwhile, you've got the creator of TikTok, which is ByteDance, and they've been experimenting with deepfake features, and Snapchat, and they've recently introduced its own face swapping tool. So, but going back to Tim Huang, you know, he argues that the common use of the term deepfake could actually benefit it in the long run. Quote, I think the great irony of people saying that all these consumer features are also deepfakes is that in some ways it commoditizes what deepfakes mean. If deep fakes become commonplace and unremarkable, then people will get comfortable with the notion of what the technology can actually do. So social media platforms, they've been happily engaging in debates over all these deep fakes and especially the moderation. Uh, you've got Facebook and Reddit with their recent announcements and they're kind of showing that they're taking the right direction to the approach. But the core issues haven't changed. Who gets to lie on the internet and who gets to decide if they're lying? But once you start heavily restricting people, especially with deep fakes, there's going to be a more of a likely chance that they're going to use alternative sources to create questionable content. It's like putting a nice big fat chocolate chip cookie in a glass jar and telling somebody you can't eat it. Clearly, that's not going to work. So all in all, restricting things for people, that's going to have negative effects, especially going into the future. And when it comes to deep fakes, we want to kind of be careful with this because it really is still a new technology. Now, talking a little bit about something totally sci-fi, and this really is kind of crazy, what do you think of a living cell robot? Well, yep, that's a thing now and it exists. So the robots, they're named Xenobot after the famous African clawed frog, which clearly nobody knows about. Uh, which scientists acquired stem cells from. Now, the Xenobot has a machine micro less than a millimeter, so it's around 0.04 inches wide. And at this size, the robot can quickly move around inside the human body, which again, now this is gonna start getting a little bit weird, but it's nothing that anybody could abuse. There's nothing you could do negative with this type of technology. But the Xenobots, they can perform activities like walking, swimming, uh, surviving without any food for days, and even collaborate in groups. Obviously, Xenobots are quite different to traditional robots, or what we think traditional robots are like. You know, they're always equipped with arms and gears. Xenobots, they don't have any of those. Uh, they look a little bit more like a pink blob as well, like a piece of flesh. It's a biological machine that has super properties. The significant difference between traditional robots and xenobots lies in the fact that conventional robots mortify over time and they end up producing harmful substances and ecological effects to the humans and the environment. But in contrast, xenobots, they don't provide any toxic substances. Xenobots are environmentally friendly. But again, let's go back and see how are they actually made. 
So stem cells have the functional ability to form different cells. So scientists, they scrape the living cells off an African clawed frog embryo, and then they incubated them. Once they were all nurtured up, the cells were then neatly cut and reshaped into body forms. Now, either way you look at this, this is a bit messed up. You're cutting a living thing into pieces like that. Another key note is that a significant aspect of these body forms, they were created by a supercomputer. But, you know, after they were formed, the cells started to work, they bonded, built structures, the heart started to pulse, and the muscle cells made the robots move around on their own. And here's the craziest part. The Xenobots are equipped with self-healing abilities. So when scientists cut one of the robots, the organism healed itself entirely and then started moving around again. So there are really good uses for these little things, and not everything's doom and gloom. I mean, they could prove to be very useful, especially for surgeries. Think about that. They could be used to carry drugs or medicine directly to the body. They can also be used for several other tasks, including cleaning up radioactive waste, collecting and degrading microplastic from the ocean, and then again, obviously transporting medicine inside the human body. And since they're so small, they can travel inside the arteries of our bodies, bring out plagues, infection. The possibilities are truly endless. And since they can survive in an aqueous environment for multiple days or even weeks without any nutrients, they could be used pretty much anywhere in the world. Xenobots can also be a really helpful tool to study and conduct more research into cellular biology. By exploring cells and more of the inside of the human body, Xenobots can open up avenues for future advancement in the field of human health and cellular biology. Xenobots are also equipped with lipid and protein deposits of their own, so this allows them to survive the one or more weeks without any additional nutrients. They also don't possess the capacity to reproduce or evolve, though, however, their lifespan can be increased to a multitude of weeks when they receive regular nutrition. So is it possible that these initial xenobots lead to larger biomachines eventually? Well, I think it's definitely possible. And we might even start seeing electronics with some biomaterial in them specifically for the self-healing properties. But talking a little bit more about robotics and a bit like animals merging with robotics, what if robots started imitating them? Well, roboticists have been turning to birds for flight inspiration for quite a few years, but they haven't successfully managed to get a drone to fly like one. David Lentick at Stanford has come a step closer by creating the first flying robot with soft feathered wings. And what, well, what does this mean? Well, it's able to maneuver very easily and withstand a lot stronger wind speeds than regular rigid drones. Now, to understand how birds control their flight, researchers, they had to study the skeletons and feathers of particularly common pigeons, which are really good at flying in turbulent conditions. Now, they found that pigeons control flight through about 40 Velcro-like feathers using four wrists and finger joints to steer their movements. Now, the researchers, they recreated the same mechanics in a propeller-driven drone. Now, the body of the drone is obviously foam board with an embedded GPS and remote controller receiver, while the maneuverable wings had real pigeon feathers attached to them. Now, the feathered wings were a lot lighter, and they turned out to be more robust than earlier prototypes made using carbon and glass fiber. So, the pigeon bot is only an early prototype, but it could pave the way forward for drones that maneuver as nimbly as birds. Giving drones bird-like wings could make them lighter and thus more efficient, meaning they'd be able to travel a lot longer distances without having to refuel or recharge. 
And most importantly, that makes them much easier to control, especially in windy conditions. But here's the, here's the little bit of a weird part. They would be a lot less noticeable to the public, so you could one day look up in the future, see a pigeon, and it could actually be a drone totally watching what you're doing. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. Talking about transportation now, we have some pretty interesting news for General Motors and it doesn't particularly look very positive. Now as we know, GM's kind of been dealing with China and all their EVs have been over and not in America and they said that its sales now in China, the world's largest new car market, fell 15% in 2019 and this was all amid tough market conditions and they expect those conditions to continue into 2020. So GM and its joint venture partners sold over about 3 million vehicles in China for 2019, which, although it sounds pretty good, that was a big decline from 4 million that it sold to the country just two years earlier. GM's fourth quarter sales in China were down 13.3% from quarter four in 2018. They are going to provide a detailed report with a full guidance for its fourth quarter earnings on February 5th, but the message is already pretty clear. Don't expect things in China to get any better anytime soon. I mean, like I said, GM's been doing a lot of really great EV work, specifically in China. I mean, they had that mid-size SUV that they're launching over there. And now, unfortunately, things are not looking that great in that market. So what's happening for the US? Well, General Motors unveiled its redesigned versions of its gas-powered GMC Yukon and Yukon XL SUVs. Upscale Denali models now include new exterior design and, for the first time, an exclusive interior with open pore woods, hand-stitched leather, and other features. The AT4 vehicles feature darker exterior accents as well as 20-inch all-terrain tires and two-speed So it's pretty clear they're still doing the same stuff. Now, for GM's only full-fledged US EV, the extremely boring Bolt, things are not looking so great. Chevy sent a bulletin to its dealers to make the all-electric Bolt model eligible for about a $10,000 incentive. Hmm, I wonder why they would do something like that. Well, maybe it's because nobody wants them. The 2019 figures represent a 29.5% decrease from two years ago in sales. So what does this mean? Well, really, this is not a joke. GM really has got to the end of the road with gas-powered stuff. There really is no excuse now. The Bolt is not an attractive car, and clearly that's a leading reason for its poor sales. And that's annoying because the platform specs are very, very good actually. What they need to do is use their Bolt skateboard platform, which they put a lot of money into, and just put different bodies on it, like the Camaro. I mean, you could maybe upscale it for the Suburban, the Cadillac models. Just make it more attractive, less of a grocery mum-like vehicle, and you'll have a really good market for it. Take the Model 3, for example. 
It looks sleek, cool, everybody wants them, even although the Chevy Bolt is a far better value out the door. So, will we see more of just the same? You know, are we going to see a low-volume Hummer EV and that's it? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Now, over at Fiat, it's a little bit of a different story. They know what's up. It looks like they're teaming up with Foxconn. And if you don't know what Foxconn is, they are the manufacturer for Apple. So now they're teaming up with Fiat to develop the electronic systems and manage the supply chain for EV vehicle manufacturing. Fiat Chrysler and Foxconn said they hope to work out a deal within six months and will initially focus sales in China. There's currently no plans to export the vehicles to the United States, so still the only electric vehicle FCA sells is the all-electric Mexican-made Fiat 500e, which is actually scheduled to be discontinued this year after seven years in production. And just for a bit of a background on the 500e, it came out in 2013, around the same time as Tesla's Model S and the Nissan Leaf. It really was the best and almost the only alternative to a Tesla because it was so over-engineered. And now that Fiat, you know, Fiat's been working a little bit with Tesla, they've been buying credits, they're definitely set up to do quite well. I mean, in 2019, FCA's CEO, Mike Manley, said the FCA will not have to pay fines for not complying with the tougher European CO2 emissions in 2019 and 2020. The reason being that they made a credit deal with Tesla. So along with FCA's forthcoming plug-in hybrid models of the Jeep Compass, the Renegade and the Wrangler, there's also going to be a new fully electric Fiat 500e coming, which reportedly has had $800 million allocated. But unfortunately, that one's only going to be available in Europe now. In 2019, there was only 300 500e vehicles delivered, and that was for the entire US. But unlike other EV compliance cars, FCA learned a lot from the 500e, and it genuinely has set them up for a very, very good position for future EVs. A lot of people don't know that the Fiat 500e was actually mainly engineered by Bosch. And to this day, the Fiat 500e holds almost 100% of the original battery capacity. So what will come out of a now Foxconn and FCA partnership? Well, I believe something that will be a very good alternative to a Tesla. And since Foxconn is Apple's manufacturer, and Apple are obviously interested in EVs, maybe we might see something else come out of this whole partnership. Now, getting back to EVs in the US now, Porsche has started delivering the new Taycan. And the first US Taycan owner has actually given his first driving report, and it's pretty positive. Uh, of particular note, he states that the car's rated 201 mile estimate is quite slow, uh, it's quite conservative, is actually what he was saying. So Greg Weiler took delivery of his Taycan in Massachusetts, becoming the first US customer. And Weiler gave some of his impressions on the car over Twitter, and he was quite impressed with the overall quality of the fit and finish of the interior, and he called the car quite a monster, saying that it was the best car he'd ever driven, hands down. Now, none of this is particularly surprising though, because you always kind of hear about good things from Porsche. They've got very good build quality and they've got a lot of experience with driving handling. So obviously they've got a high price as well, so you'd expect that. But the efficiency was never a highlight of the Taycan. It was actually one of the big jokes about it. They claimed 250 and then it got rated at 200. It wasn't very good for PR. Now, the most notable comment that came from Weiler was that the Taycan's efficiency was a lot better than it was rated. And it's important to note because there's two Taycan models. There's the Turbo and the Turbo S. The Turbo is supposed to have more range than the Turbo S. The Turbo S is what Weiler has. 
He suggests that the rating is highly conservative because he drove the car, not particularly in ideal conditions, cold weather and spirited driving, and he only used 46% of the battery, and that was about 117 miles left to go. So if we do a little bit of math, that means that the Taycan Turbo S gets 254 miles of total range, even in poor conditions. So this is before taking into account any amount of the battery that Porsche is holding back to protect against battery degradation. But you look at that 201 miles as the original kind of what was, oh, this is turbo. That's just barely enough for the majority of people. That meant it was the least efficient electric car currently being sold in the US. Of course, this is only one driver port from one owner in one set of road conditions. And because Weiler didn't drive the car all the way until empty, we don't know where the bottom end is for the battery, but it's quite possible that the range display could have been calibrated a little bit off. And this seems to happen a lot with EVs. Usually they're referred to as guessometers for range. And now that the floodgates are opened and deliveries are starting to go out, there's a good chance that there's going to be a lot more owner reports soon. And that's going to give us a really good sense of what it's really capable of. Over at Volvo now, they just announced last year that an electric version of the XC90, which is a big crossover SUV, will be produced starting in late 2022. They're going to build the XC90 EV at its factory northwest of Charleston in South Carolina, where it currently produces the S60 sedan. And as a sign of its commitment to the electric SUV, Volvo this week said it will build an adjacent plant to the supply of the XC90 and other future EVs. Construction for the battery plant will start hopefully in the fall, and it will be completed in early 2022, in time for the launching and production of the next XC90, which is Volvo's flagship crossover. The South Carolina plant will also become the global production center for it. The battery factory is part of the $600 million site that includes a second production line, training facilities, and new offices. So the electric XC90 is also going to be Volvo's third EV, coming after the XC40 recharge and Polestar 2. Both are going to come out later this year. Then there's the S60 sedan, which is produced at the Charleston facility and is not currently considered a candidate for an EV. However, I mean, if you think about it, Volvo made their V60 wagon an EV, it'd be a really big hit because currently at the moment, there are no estate wagon EVs on the market. And I'm betting that the reason their V90 wagon didn't sell too well was due to buyers waiting on an EV option that they never got. But going back to the XC90, it will be built on the next version of Volvo's scalable product architecture platform, referred to as SPA2. The XC40 Recharge and Polestar 2 will use Volvo's CMA compact architecture, and Dallas Bolin, who is the manager of Volvo's product launch group, said that the local battery production would be more cost-effective than transporting the batteries to the assembly plant. So the XC40, which I talked about, should go on sale later this year, and it's a small crossover SUV with a 78 kilowatt hour battery pack and is expected to sell for $50,000 before incentives. According to Volvo, the XC40 recharges dual motor and is going to be able to deliver a 0 to 60 performance in 4.7 seconds. That's really not even bad by Tesla standards. So in December, Andy Gustafsson, 
president and CEO of Volvo Cars USA, said, we're going to launch one BEV, which is a battery electric vehicle, every year through 2025. So hopefully they release that Wagon Estate EV because really, like I said, that would be a massive hit and totally capitalize in a market that currently there's no other options. But let's move over into something a little bit more British now to a company that had a very promising outlook for their EVs, Aston Martin. Well, they've done a total 180 now. Originally, they were going to launch a production version of their first electric sports sedan, which was called the Rapide E, but reportedly have now killed that entire program. So the British automaker unveiled the prototype back in 2015, and they converted just a regular Rapide into the all-electric drivetrain. Two years later, they started working with Williams Advanced Engineering, and that's tech division for Williams Formula One team, to make the vehicle's electric powertrain. Then there was one of the first production prototypes of the Rapide E, which Aston Martin officially launched at the Shanghai Auto Show in April 2019. And almost a year later, the company is reportedly just now cancelling plans to produce the vehicle and will instead shift the program into an EV research project only. However, a source close to the firm says that it's now become a research project used to further Aston's broader electrification program with no intention of producing customer cars. And it's not clear how many orders were actually taken because I suppose that this thing was quite popular. Were refunds kind of issued? I mean, they really were only planning to produce 155 Aston Martin Repeat E electric cars. But now that number is zero. Now, the partnership with the Williams Advanced Engineering resulted in a new EV platform with a, quote, 800-volt battery electrical architecture with a 65-kilowatt-hour installed capacity with over 5,600 lithium-ion cylindrical cells, powering two rear-mounted electrical motors producing a combined target output of just over 610 brake horsepower and a colossal 950 newton meters of torque. So the company says that it will result in a range of over 200 miles under the WLTP standard and it will charge 85 miles of range per hour using a typical 400 volt 50 kilowatt hour charger. With a compatible 800 volt outlet, Aston Martin says that the Rapide can charge up to 310 miles per hour. It also, like most EVs, had an onboard charger and it was for level 2 speeds, uh, but the company didn't specify the charge rate. It did say that it should fully recharge the battery pack in as little as three hours. It's just not very impressive. For level two speeds, it's not bad, but not fantastic either. Uh, as for performance specs, the automaker is talking about a top speed of 155 miles per hour with a sub four second time from zero to 60 and a 50 to 70 miles an hour of 1.5 seconds. So that was actually quite good. But the 0 to 60, that's kind of fairly average for the EV market. But deciding to axe the Rapide, that was definitely a mistake. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show's broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live.
wow have we got some big news from SpaceX. SpaceX just took a giant leap forward on its quest to launch astronauts. They just intentionally destroyed one of their Block 5 Falcon 9 rockets this weekend as part of a crucial test for the Crew Dragon capsule's launch escape system. So the Falcon must die so the Dragon can fly. And really this was the last major hurdle SpaceX needed to clear before the Crew Dragon can begin to carry actual astronauts to and from the International Space Station. It was originally scheduled to launch on January 18th, but the unpiloted crew capsule was grounded for 24 hours due to an unfavorable weather condition at both the launch site and the Crew Dragon recovery zone, which was the Atlantic Ocean just off the Florida coast. The weather forecast was rescheduled for the next day on the 19th, but that also looked kind of similar, with chances of favorable conditions at liftoff worsening. However, the weather miraculously cleared up and SpaceX was able to lift off at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. There was excited onlookers and they were all watching, they had their cameras poised in the grassy area at the NASA press site. And then the Falcon 9 roared to life, triggering car alarms, shaking nearby buildings. And after the planned launch abort was triggered, 84 seconds into the flight, there was a massive fireball. A few moments later, a sonic boom echoed through the sky. The Falcon 9 exploded as expected, and a second sonic boom was heard when its remnants hit the ocean. Onlookers were hoping to see the Crew Dragon descend under parachute, but unfortunately there was a lot of clouds and that was obstructing the view. But let's talk about actually what the whole mission was about. So the mission starred the unpiloted crew capsule and that blasted off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center over in Florida atop the Falcon 9 rocket, which is a thrice flown first stage. Before meeting its demise today, this booster made three trips to space in 2018, lofting the first Bangladesh satellite, an Indonesian communication satellite, and then a rideshare mission that launched a stack of 64 satellites. This was the first booster that SpaceX had produced on the new Block 5 platform. And after serving the company quite well, it went out obviously with a big bang, destroyed by Dragonfire. Uh, the IFA mission was designed to test the Crew Dragon's Super Draco powered abort system, which obviously pulls the capsule free of its launcher in the event of an emergency during flight. Kathy Luders, who's NASA's commercial crew program manager, said, we're purposely failing a launch vehicle to make sure our abort system works. That's a very, very different way for us to formally conduct a mission. When NASA retired its space fleet, obviously the big space shuttles in 2011, the agency looked at the commercial sector to ferry crews up and down from the space station, and it selected SpaceX and Boeing as its future space taxi providers. Each of these two companies has built their own spacecraft capable of safely carrying crew under a series of contracts. The most recent of two, announced in September 2014, are worth a total of $6.8 billion. Once operational, the two vehicles, which is SpaceX's Crew Dragon and Boeing's CST-100 Starliner, will be NASA's primary means of transporting astronauts to and from space. SpaceX launched its first Crew Dragon mission, which was the unpiloted test flight to the station, back in March 2019. Crew Dragon's in-flight abort test was delayed when the same capsule exploded during the ground test in last April, forcing months of investigation. We heard all about that in the news. And there was a lot of upgrades and a series of successful test fires that had to be done, all in way to make for this weekend's launch. 
In 2019, Boeing also launched a pad abort test of its own Starliner spacecraft, as well as an unpiloted test flight to orbit. That orbital flight test, however, did not reach the space station, and it was all due to the mission clock software, and it all got sorted out after. But despite all these hurdles, both SpaceX and Boeing aim to launch their first crewed missions later this year. But before that can happen, both companies must prove their vehicles have what it takes to keep astronauts safe during flight. In-flight anomalies, they're quite rare, but they do happen. And as we saw back in October 2018, Back then, NASA astronaut Nick Haig and Russian cosmonaut Alexei Ovechkin were on their way to the International Space Station when their launcher, which was the Soyuz, experienced an in-flight anomaly. Now, the duo were carried to safety by the Soyuz abort system, and NASA wants to ensure that if one of SpaceX's Falcon 9 rockets were to have a similar problem, the astronauts would still be brought home safely. And this is what this whole in-flight abort test is all about. SpaceX said in a mission statement that, quote, For this test, Falcon 9's sent trajectory will mimic a Crew Dragon mission to the International Space Station to best match the physical environments of the rocket and spacecraft what they'll encounter during the normal ascent. However, unlike a normal flight, SpaceX programmed its Crew Dragon to intentionally trigger a launch escape just shortly after Max-Q, which is the moment of maximum aerodynamic stress on the rocket. Embedded on the outer hull of Dragon crew capsule are eight engines called Super Dracos. If the vehicle's computers sense that something is amiss during flight, they'll trigger these thrusters to fire. Then the Super Dracos will push the Dragon crew up away from the rocket, and once the capsule is a safe distance away, the Crew Dragon will deploy its parachutes and land into the Atlantic Ocean, where recovery vessels will retrieve the crew and the capsule. Now, that's exactly what happened during today's test. The capsule blasted free of the rocket ride less than 90 seconds after liftoff, and less than five minutes in, Crew Dragon deployed its drogue chutes, and then the four main chutes followed after. The capsule splashed down softly about 20 miles off the Florida coast about nine minutes after launch. Though there's lots of analysis to follow through on, everything seemed to go exactly as planned today. SpaceX principal integration engineer John Insprucker said, It looks like, right now, a great test. Benji Reed, who's SpaceX's director of crew mission management, said prior to the launch, This is a big test for us. It's a test of the system that's supposed to test the crews and a very important step in making progress towards crew transportation to the International Space Station. After a data review, SpaceX hopes that NASA will clear the Crew Dragon to carry humans, and once that happens, SpaceX will fly two NASA astronauts, first of which will be Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, to the International Space Station for a two-week stay during a test mission called Demo-2. If that initial crew flight goes smoothly, NASA will greenlight the Dragon and begin to use it as regular crewed flights. But talking a little bit about the International Space Station, how close is it to an endgame? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, the orbiting complex has been continuously occupied by rotating astronaut crews since November 2000. The International Consortium that runs the ISS is committed to keeping the lights on all the way through to at least 2024, which is not that far away. But the orbiting lab could keep going for a lot longer. NASA spokesman Rob Navius said the extension of the station is being discussed between NASA and the international partners. No formal decision on date for extension has been agreed upon yet, but it's under discussion. 
And this discussion is of quite a lot of interest to a group of US senators who recently proposed extending the ISS operations through to 2030 by various commercial entities using the space station for revenue generating activities. Both of these groups are looking to grow the space economy on the ISS in preparation for these space economy efforts in Earth orbit and beyond. But as we know, in space terms, four years is extremely short. After all, completing the first phase of the ISS construction took 13 years. Wrapping it up, I mean, that was just at the end of the space shuttle fleet's final flights in 2011. As we know, the administration of President Trump has already mapped out some bold space plans for the next four years, namely landing people on the moon by 2024, but where does that leave the ISS operations? Well, NanoRacks, Texas-based company that helps other commercial companies develop products and experiments for the ISS, they're already thinking about the end of the space station's lifetime. But history shows that it's tough to know when that's actually going to happen. Richard Pernili, who's a senior vice president of business development at NanoRacks, said at Spacecom conference in Houston last November that, quote, I've been in this job eight years. When I started in 2011, the International Space Station was supposed to be retired in 2015. Now, the nominal number is somewhere around 2024. Some people say 2028, some people say 2030, or beyond. It's worthwhile to think about this question. It won't be a hard and fast date. We won't wake up one morning and the whole thing is gone. There is going to be some sort of transition period, and I think we're starting to enter that transition period. Perneli said he pointed out three possible signs for the transition period coming up from commercial operators. The first is a recent Low Earth Orbit, or LEO, commercialization study led by Nanorax, which worked on a project with more than a dozen other companies. That report, released in July 2019, suggests gradually transitioning the ISS to an outpost system that would reuse the upper stages of rockets to create different platforms for commercial customers. These platforms would be taken care of by robots that would either fly freely or be attached to one another. The study called for NASA support but added the commercial market should take the lead in determining what hardware and experiments would be suitable for these orbital platforms. Pernelli said for NanoRacks, we're looking at the market for low Earth orbit commercialization as an ecosystem. We're adding all the different resources and we'll be including the type of work on the space station that people want. Building an ecosystem will be a critical part in doing this. A second sign of change, Pernelli says, is that NASA's recent announcement that it would allow a small allocation for commercial payloads to go to the International Space Station. In June, a new NASA directive promised to, quote, enable commercial manufacturing and production. Pernelli said that this is really important because it extends the space station even further than just a pure science operation. The station, Pernelli says, is now more inclusive of commercial ventures, which could bring a lot of benefits to all the people on Earth. The third sign, Pernelli says, has to do with the greater number of commercial modules flying to space. At the same time as NASA released its new directive, the agency opened a solicitation for commercial companies to eventually attach their own modules to the International Space Station. Over time, several companies would have the chance to use this new commercial space station port and even fly their own astronauts to use the facility. Other companies, including Sierra Nevada Corp, Northrop Grumman, and they've all been kind of thinking about these space modules. 
Representatives from both companies joined Perneli on the panel at Spacecom to talk about the possibilities for these future space habitats once the market is ready for them. Derek Hodgkins, who's the Director of Business Development and Advanced Programs for Northrop Grumman, said, The cost of launch remains the most significant cost hindering business models for commercial space. His company recently completed ground testing for a deep space habitat in association with NASA. Hutchkins called for more repurposing of existing space facilities and for systems that are capable of running multiple missions at the same time to both, quote, optimize the return of investment and reduce the number of launches needed to get commercial activities up and running. Sierra Nevada's principal systems engineer, Jeff Valania, said his firm is working on the development of multi-purpose habitats that would be, quote, ideally suited for commercial low-Earth orbit activities, such as tourism, research, and product development. He said it can augment the existing ISS habitable module or serve as the main habitable module for a standalone commercial platform. Like Hodgkins, he called for a shared commercial space that would allow providers to offer many different services and products. So we might actually see sometime in 2020 a reuse for the ISS. And although, to be honest, it's very early, it really is not a bad thing to organize beforehand. Now, a bit further away from the ISS, over at Mars, we've got some pretty amazing news. A new image from the ESA's Mars Express spacecraft shows a beautiful and desolate Mars. It also, most importantly, highlights some of the natural process that shaped the planet's surface. The image is of the northern polar region, and it features bright patches of ice, deep dark troughs, and evidence of storms and strong winds. Of the, all the planets in the solar system, Mars really is kind of the most closely resembling to Earth. I mean, it's got seasons, and although the Martian year is about twice as long as Earth's, it's still very similar. The North Pole goes through many changes throughout the seasons. The region is covered in layers of ice that experience subtle shifts in their, both their composition and their extent. Thick layers of water ice cover the region throughout the year, and then in winter, the temperature drops to an extreme of negative 143 degrees Celsius, so about minus 225 Fahrenheit. Carbon dioxide freezes and precipitates out of thin air, forming a layer of frozen carbon dioxide on top of the water ice. That frozen layer of CO2 can be up to 2 meters thick, and at the same time, carbon dioxide clouds also form and they can conceal a lot of the ground below the orbital view. Luckily though, the Mars Express Orbiter has an extremely powerful camera called the High Resolution Stereo Camera, or the HRSC. Now, the HRSC is a powerful full-color camera that is imaging the entirety of the Martian surface. Now, overall, it captures about 10-meter resolution photos and with the HRSC, there's another channel called the Super Resolution Camera, the SRC, and that can capture images at an even greater resolution of 2.3 meters per pixel. So it's about 2.35 kilometers squared. The SRC is used on select Mars areas, and Ralph Jolman, who's the HRSC principal investigator from the Institute of Planetary Research, says, quote, the strength of the HRSC is to perform high-resolution digital terrain models of the Martian surface in order to provide topographic context for the geoscientific evaluation of surface processes in space and time. And when you look at the image, you can kind of see a lot of things. Now, the red and brown trows look like they're cutting through the ice, 
but they're actually part of a larger spiral pattern of troughs that radiate outwards from the center of the North Pole. From above, it looks like the kind of pattern is a bit like a zebra stripes. Now, scientists think that the Kabatic winds are largely responsible for creating that kind of unusual pattern. And the Kabatic winds, they carry higher density air to lower elevations. Now, on Mars, they carry cold defense air from the polar glaciers and frozen plateaus down to the lower elevations like valleys and depressions. All at the same time, the planet is rotating. So that creates the Croilus effect. So rather than forming straight troughs emanating from the pole, they create spiral patterns that radiate from the center of the North Pole. So it's a very interesting uh, thing to see. On Earth, the Croilus force is evident in the formation of hurricanes and other weather phenomenons. And the image of Mars, there's a few streaks of clouds on the left of the frame, and they're likely caused by a small local storm that's kind of kicking up dust into the atmosphere contributing to the erosion of the scarps and slopes and changing the surface appearance and topography. The overarching purpose of the HRSC though is on the Mars Express and that's all to study the Mars surface processes over time, including the winds, the storms, seasonal changes at the poles, all of that. The layers of ice at the poles are quite, you know, they're of a particular interest to scientists uh, because they likely hold clues to how the planet's climate has changed over millions of years. I mean, hey, it might even tell us a little bit about what's happening with Earth. This is because as the ice melts and freezes, there's little bits of dust that settle in between that, and that captures a snapshot of what the conditions were at that time. So the Mars Express spacecraft has been orbiting since 2003, so it's been a long time. And in that time, it's imaged the entire planet of Mars at 10 meters per pixel with the HRSC. And most critically, this is gonna be super important for when we, as humans, go off to Mars to make it our new home. And talking about making Mars our own home, we've got to obviously talk about Elon. Now, Elon's kind of got some news and it's been all over Twitter. And there's quite a lot to go through actually. So in a series of tweets, Elon kind of revealed new details about his plan to build a city of 1 million people on Mars by 2050. So he hopes to build a thousand starships, which is obviously, as we know, the big towering, fully reusable spaceship that SpaceX is developing right now in South Texas. And that's, he's kind of planning for a hundred starships per year as production. Eventually, the goal is to launch an average of three starships per day to make the trip to Mars even more available to anybody. Now, he very, very importantly wrote, there needs to be such that anybody can go if they want with loans available for those that don't have money. And I mean, if that's not enough to convince you to leave Earth behind, I don't know what will. Starship's gonna be the most powerful launch system ever created. Each launch is gonna pack enough thrust to send more than 100 tons so that's about seven fully loaded school buses worth of mass and 100 people into orbit at a time. Now, Musk didn't specify exactly uh, what the rockets would be needing to actually carry to Mars initially, but obviously it would be a lot of food, water, building materials, tools, advanced life support systems, that's kind of all given. So the most important thing is actually getting stuff there. And as he said on Twitter, megatons per year to orbit are needed for life to become multiplanetary. He also said that he plans to capitalize on the brief windows of time, the orbits Earth and Mars and they get very close. And that happens about every 25 months. That allows the spacecraft to spring off Earth's rotation and set themselves on a very low fuel journey towards Mars. 
He said that they would take advantage of that opportunity by loading the Mars fleet into Earth orbit, then sending the, you know, however many starships on a Mars-bound trajectory over a 30-day window every 26 months. So that does seem to contradict an earlier tweet in which Musk said that a thousand starships would need to fly to Mars each year rather than every 26 months. So either way, SpaceX, they have a long way to go before reaching those goals. But Musk said a new starship prototype may launch before the end of March. That's this year. Back on December 27th, he tweeted, first flight hopefully in two to three months. So we're, we're very, very close to now getting the final prototype. The development of the prototype has had a couple of delays, as we know, there was the accidental explosion of the fuel tank pressurization test on November 20th, which blew the top of the 16-story Starship prototype. And it's not far too far to imagine that they could build about 20 different prototypes before engineers settle on the 1.0 design to send cargo and people off. So, but the full Starship launch system that would also include a 22-story rocket booster called the Super Heavy, which we've talked about before. And the whole thing would stand all together at 118, so 118 meters tall. It's massive. And the most critical part to it is how much is it going to cost? And we know now that a single launch would cost just $2 million. That is so much cheaper than just even like the, the Falcon 9 system. He said in September that he hopes to launch the Starship into orbit mid-2020 and maybe even fly a person on it before the end of the year. Now, Gwen Shotwell, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer of SpaceX, said during a NASA teleconference that the company was, quote, aiming to be able to drop Starship on the lunar surface by 2022. And then, obviously, they've got to fly the Japanese tech entrepreneur and billionaire Yuzako Mizawa around the moon for 2023. Lastly, he wrote, helping to pay for this is why I'm accumulating assets on Earth. And if we're honest, he's doing a pretty good job of that right now, and everything seems to be going to plan. So not too long. I think we might even see it mid-2020. We're going to see the big Starship launch, and that really is going to mark the start of an interplanetary human species. Now, one thing that we probably want to take with us is a bit of oxygen. We're going to need that to survive. And it looks like the European Space Agency has actually found a way to produce oxygen from lunar dust from the moon. Now, they took samples of real lunar dust and they, were, they actually found 40 to 45% of oxygen by weight. So the team just opened a prototype oxygen plant inside the European Space Research and Technology Lab in the Netherlands. And Beth Lomax, who's at the University of Glasgow, said, quote, being able to acquire oxygen resources found on the moon would obviously be hugely useful for future lunar settlers, both for breathing and for the local production of rocket fuel. But how does this actually work? Well, their prototype system mixes stimulated lunar regolith, and they've yet to try it with the real thing, uh, with molten calcium chloride salt. Now, the scientists heat the mixture up to about 950 degrees Celsius and run it through a current, and that releases oxygen. Now, this process is called molten salt electrolysis. Now, the electrolysis process has another useful byproduct, which is metal alloys. So, the scientists are investigating applications to make best use of these alloys on the moon. I mean, imagine you could maybe use it in a 3D printer, maybe as the melted down material to make little objects. The team is looking to design a, quote, pilot plant that could operate on the moon by the mid-2020s. 
So either way, this is very interesting work and it could possibly lead to some really cool other tech that we could use here on Earth. Lastly, we have the new US Space Force. So obviously it's it's been kind of big news. It's the newest, it's the freshest military branch and they've got their name tapes for the US Space Force which are gonna be attaching to their uniforms. But the larger point is that the name tapes are gonna be on the same kind of camouflage uniforms that are already in use by the Army and the Air Force. Now, the branch posted, quote, the USSF is utilizing current Army and Air Force uniforms, saving costs designing and producing a new one. Now, plenty of Twitter users responded with some wisecracks and they had some questions about the space's focus on camouflage. I mean, camo in space, that was what somebody said more wasted tax dollars, great job. So, I mean, there was some other comments, but I won't go through all of them, but others thought more creatively, you know, what if we had a uniform that called for something like Starfleet, you know, a Star Trek inspired thing. But the Space Force Twitter manager noted these and pointed out that not only was the branch trying to be cost effective, but members aren't exactly in space yet. Quote, members will look like their joint counterparts they'll be working with on the ground. So some active duty airmen currently in the Air Force, you know, they've got the already existing Space Command, will be assigned to the new branch, but will remain in the Air Force for the time being. So a US Air official said, you know, some five to 6,000 personnel out of the 16,000 will eventually be transferred to Space Force. But either way you look at it, I think the main thing is we actually have now a US Space Force. That's pretty cool. And this is only the first month of 2020. There's a lot more that can happen. And I think it's gonna be worth it to just watch this space and see what happens next. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer and SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore, it's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 